Welcome to the Real Life Theology Podcast. We got another really great track session for you today. In this episode of our podcast, Ben Barnett discusses his time in the military and how it taught him the ideal of laying down his life for his country. He takes this and applies it in his walk as a Christian with Jesus. He discusses how discipleship is a calling and really a major part of a Christian's walk with God. Let's go and check out what Ben has to say. We really hope this content gives you great encouragement for your week. All right. uh, Welcome. Good afternoon. My name is uh, Ben Barnett, and I'm glad that you have chosen out of the many classes you could have picked to be here this afternoon. A couple things what I want to do. I'm going to give some content about the lesson that I want to share, and then I want to have a Q&A at the end. I want to ask you some questions about what I share. I got some other stuff in the beginning, but we're running short on time, so I'm trying to adjust as I move and go through this. How many of you guys familiar with the, the Great Commission? Everybody is, right? How many of you familiar with the Great Compassion? Uh, maybe so-so. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to tell you up front, I'm going to say a lot of stuff. I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to kind of set up what I want to share today uh, with you. It's, you know, really kind of my personal experiential journey in disciple making and becoming a disciple of Jesus uh, for me, which would be, you know, 30 years ago. I was baptized December 1st, 1993, and I served in ministry in churches in Atlanta, Georgia for 26 years. And then in October of 2020, I transitioned. I resigned from ministry. Felt like that was a divine time to go do something else and to follow my passion, uh, which is to really engage the uh, materially poor and the marginalized people all across the world. So that's what I do right now. I work at Hope Worldwide. I've got one of my co-workers, Lisa Baker, here, and one of our former board members, Reese Neeling, who spoke this morning, is here as well. Uh, also serve at Hope Worldwide. We're a global NGO and got a footprint all around the world uh, trying to just help people. And so that's what I get to do. Uh, in the church, I had a pastoral role that included counseling, uh, uh, marriages, funerals, all the stuff that you can imagine. Uh, I still do those, but less frequently. And I'm at the place in my life, 55 years old, uh, having served 26 years in the ministry, doing something that I love. And what I want to share with you today has been kind of my journey and how I got to where I am today, where I work, and why I work there, and the mission and purpose that I have, and that I hope to fulfill for the, the rest of my life. And so I'm going to do this under uh, something I call a trajectory of discipleship making, starting with Matthew chapter 4 and going to Matthew chapter 28. And so I want to let me start off with the picture here. Uh, I have this picture in my office at Hope Worldwide. I have this picture at home in my home office, and I have this picture on my phone. And so uh, one is a very proud moment for me in my life. I'm, did you see it good? Oh, I'm move in. No. <laughs> uh, it's a very proud moment for me. May 31st, 1990, I graduated from West Point, General Colin Powell. Uh, I was able to be one of the people in the top of the class that got to be commissioned by Colin Powell. That's why I have this up here. So at West Point, you not only graduate from the academy, you are commissioned, commissioned as an officer in the U.S. military. So on this day, walking by, when I look at this picture, I think about what the academy did for me. I arrived on 
July 1st, 1986, and I graduated on May 31st, 1990, that was exactly 1,420 days. And the thing I learned is you don't uh, be transformed into a leader overnight. It wasn't a 90-day program. The Academy has been around since 1802, 223 years. They have figured out exactly how long it takes to create a leader, to take a teenager and to create a leader that loves the country and loves their fellow soldiers. So I hope you can follow my analogy here. This Colin Powell, four-star general, was at the time the highest ranking authority in all of the U.S. military. And I remember walking up and standing in front of him and saluting him and him smiling and congratulating me on my journey. And and I and I don't say this lightly. I felt this sense of empowerment as I walked across that stage. What you also don't know here, you might say this is just a great day. I, I wasn't confident like this when I arrived on July 1st, 1986. I was 18 years old. And I'm going to say this, it's not like I I hated the United States. I was indifferent to the country. I was 18. I had never even voted yet. And I didn't go to West Point because I really cared about the U.S. and was ready to defend the the country and all that stuff. That's not why I went there. I went there because I was recruited to play Division I football. And I got a scholarship. And everybody does. And cadets at West Point get paid on a monthly basis. And it's a great education. It's free. That's why I went there. So I didn't understand on the first day why everybody was yelling at me and going through the hazing and all that stuff. I learned that. But what I want to say is that over the course of 1,420 days, something happened. Because on this day, that same one who showed up as an 18-year-old, I had just signed up to volunteer as an infantry officer. And I remember we were at war and Iraq and Kuwait. And I sat down, and my commander said, I heard that you are engaged. I said, yes, I'm engaged to my high school sweetheart, Tammy. He says, well, when are you getting married? I said, we're going to get married next June. He says, close the door. I closed the door. He said, now, don't say I, I told you this, but if I was you, I would go ahead and get married as soon as possible. Because if something happens to you, it's better you have a wife than a fiance. Because she'll be taken care of and soldiers die. And I was like, and I'm telling you, when I walked, I was fully prepared to die for my country. And I thought about what happened? What did they do over this four year period? It was this transformation that took place. And I believe that discipleship is the same thing. When I saluted him and I was empowered, it was the same thing when I said on July, December 1st, 1993, in the waters of baptism, Jesus is what? Lord. On this day, I was pledging my life and, and, and pledging an oath and a covenant that I would defend the Constitution of the United States of America against foreign and domestic threats. And I was fully prepared to do it. And when I look at that picture, I cannot believe I was that prepared to do that. I, like, I wonder now, like, what happened for me? What, what transpired? What transformation 
took place. And so I want to use this to kind of model a discipleship making process because I kind of see the same thing happening. And I'm going to show you something in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And so over the last 16 years, and I, I could email you this as, as well. But you can go ahead and take a picture, but I'll get your email address at the end and I will email everybody this PowerPoint. What I see is, are these things in the Gospel of Matthew, a trajectory. And what I want to do and what I did do was I reverse engineered the Great Commission. Matthew 28, we all know, go, Jesus, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them, right? Continue to obey, and I'll, I'll teach them to obey, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Well, Jesus didn't start there. Sometimes we start there with people. Jesus started with the great calling in Matthew chapter 4. Anybody know what Matthew 4 says? Come follow me. Come follow me. And I'm going to make you fishers of men. Leadership starts with followership. I learned it at West Point. My first day at West Point, July 1st, 1986, my parents drove me up and my mom kept saying, you need to pack. West Point had sent me a letter and said, don't pack nothing. You won't need it. (laughs) And, And then they said, whatever clothes you wear on the first day, make sure it's not something you don't want because we're going to throw them away because you won't need them. And my mom kept going, that doesn't make sense. Babe, you got to pack. I said, Mom, West Point says don't come with nothing. And so I showed up in some clothes I think I bought the day before at Walmart or Kmart or something. And I got there and within the first hour of being at West Point, they took my clothes and put me in some, put us all in the same uniform, shorts and t-shirts and socks, and said, the clothes you came with, you won't need them. Anything you need, we got for you. So when I think about this, this, this call to leadership, I think about the disciples there, there was fishermen, right? And so this would be a sermon series. I'm trying to go through this really quickly, but I could do a whole sermon on the great calling and this high purpose that Jesus had when he said, come and follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so to to read the Gospels through this hermeneutic and this lens of followership that we're actually going with Jesus, not a thought experiment. It was literally they dropped everything, everything they had, and they started following Jesus. The challenge for us sometimes as Christians for a while, we go back and pick up the stuff we dropped instead of just leaving it dropped. Westport showed me you got to drop everything because we're going to retrain you. We're going to transform you into something different. So we got the great calling. Right after the great calling, I call it the great curriculum. Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. The, I would call this my military analogy, basic training. This is boot camp. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. And for a moment, just think about the foundational, basic training things that Jesus taught. And, I, and I'll ask disciples sometimes, I'll say, tell me your favorite parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And I find that so many people have a hard time knowing some of the, the basic fundamentals because they are incredibly challenging. Love your enemy. He talks about anger and hatred. Talks about treasure, true treasure. Talks about judgment, hypocrisy, 
integrity. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Deceit. Uh, marriage. Divorce. Remarriage. Adultery. Lust. If you, he, it's like he comes in and he lays the foundation in this great curriculum. And the curriculum is just a course of study. You know, uh, you won't find these great calling, great curriculum, all that stuff in scripture, just like you won't find great commission in there. We, we put that in there. So we, I'm taking the liberty to put it elsewhere. So I'm just saying the great calling, the great curriculum. And then we get to the great commandment. And right here, Jesus summed up all the law. Remember, the expert in the law came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, he, I guess he thought he was going to trap Jesus because in the, the law of Moses, there was 600, the Jews had like 600 and I think 13 commandments. Really, there was 2,000, but they had organized 613. And so the expert in the law goes, well, if, if righteousness is attributed to the fact that we obey the laws, it's hard to obey 613. That's just very difficult. What's even harder than obeying 613 laws is knowing 613. So he was going to trap Jesus. Jesus, just like this, answered it. Oh, that's easy. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Jesus says all of those laws hang on these two laws. Colin Powell's famously quoted by saying, the best leaders are the greatest simplifiers. And that's what Jesus does. He takes 613 commandments. He simplifies the faith of Christianity. And he goes, okay, if you learn these two things, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, you're good. In fact, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, another teacher in the law came up to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And how do you interpret it? And he goes, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And then Jesus, I'm paraphrasing this part. Jesus basically says to him, you got the right answer, but that don't equal eternal life because you've got to go and do it. And then he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so that Shema here is what the pious Jews would recite every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. Twice a day, they would do this in the morning. And they would get up and before they went to bed at night. I want you to imagine that when you're before you eat, you recite the Shema. You get up from the table, go get in your car, go to work, recite the Shema. Be at work, recite the Shema. Go to lunch with some friends. You're eating again, recite the Shema. You're back in your car, recite the Shema. Come home, it's already on your curb or your mailbox or on your front door. It's there as you walk in. Recite the Shema. You go in, you, the kids are home from school. You recite the Shema. We sit down to eat dinner. You recite the Shema. You go to bed at night. You recite the Shema. You wake up the next day. What do you do? Recite the Shema. And only I share this with you because, go back to my military analogy, of those 1,420 days I was at West Point, they do this in the military, military post. Every duty day 
begins with reveille, and it ends with retreat. And it's signaled by the bugle sound. So at West Point, we're in the same uniform every morning. You get up, you're walking, you're doing whatever is taking place. Somewhere on post, they're lifting up the American flag. And when you hear the bugle sound and it plays our colors, you turn and you salute. And even though you can't see the flag, you salute until the bugle stops. And then you go about your day. Then at the end of the day, when you get off work, the bugle sound comes again. You stop, you turn, you salute. And it played the bugle. Then it plays another song, maybe the national anthem. Then it goes down and you're finished. So I told you that when I came to West Point on July 1st, I hadn't voted. I didn't think about really the United States. I did. I didn't didn't pay much attention to U.S. history in school. Um, I didn't watch news. There was no social media. I didn't care. So what happened from July 1st, 1986 to May 31st, 1990? Something happened in me and my fellow cadets that when we got up every morning and the, the flag is a symbol and we looked at it and we made this pledge and maybe the first day it meant nothing. Maybe the end of the first month, you know, it became a little bit important. But by the time I was graduating, I was like, I'd die for that. Piece of cloth hanging from a pole. And I go, I would, I'm, I'm pledging an oath and a covenant to that. It's like the cross for us. So the Jews, imagine what would happen in our lives, the greatest commandment to begin every day and to end every day with this, <laughs> reciting the Shema, picking up the phone and calling our fellow soldiers and reminding each other of the Shema, that it's the greatest commandment. It's important to, to, to remember that. So that's the, the great commandment. Then I get to the great compassion, the parable of the sheep and goats. And I won't read it. I'm assuming all of you know it. And Jesus says, when I was hungry, you did what? When I was thirsty, you did what? When I was a stranger, you did what? When I was in prison, you did what? When I was sick, you did what? And when you did that for the least of these, you did it from who? For Jesus. When we did that, He said, when you did it for the least of these, you did that for me. I'm showing you what I believe to be Jesus' disciple-making process, that it came with calling people, then teaching them basics, fundamental principles of how you're supposed to live your life as a Christian, what you're supposed to believe, how you're supposed to think, how you're supposed to act. All of that is in the great curriculum. And then Jesus then says, okay, the next step to discipleship is to teach you that this is all about love. It's all about love. The greatest commandment, love God, love neighbors yourself. And then I think Jesus says, before I send you out, Matthew 28 on the mountain, before I send you out, I got one more big lesson I want you to know. And that is this right here. Matthew 25 comes before Matthew 
chapter 28. You know, from a military perspective, if you send somebody to a battle and they don't feel called and they're not trained, they're dead. You send them out to die. So without a sense of calling, discipleship becomes optional and void of inspiration, divine inspiration, a sense of being called by God and Jesus to this great mission and to this great purpose. And that's what he does with each one of us. And he, and he says, you know, uh, come and follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. Tell you another story here real quick. Uh, I got a friend of mine. So this is probably 2004. I was in seminary at the time, uh, working on an MDiv, then eventually did a DMIN. So I was in school studying. One of my church members, a guy named Gary Burke, I share this story about him all the time. Uh, Gary, before becoming a Christian, had been a drug dealer. And he had stopped that years and years. He had his own business. He had a wife, two daughters. One weekend, just in Atlanta, the police run his tags. There's a federal warrant for his arrest. So he's going to go to prison for 25 years. He's fully ready, ready to accept it. I go with him to jail, the, you know, go with him to the, the sentencing, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. And, and so he's there standing before the judge. And the judge asked him a question. And he begins to do a Bible study with the judge. <laughs> he basically told the judge, he says, you know, uh, you remember what Paul talks about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. There was a time in my life where I had worldly sorrow. I was glad I, I was just glad I, I didn't get caught, whatever. He said, I got a godly sorrow. I've repented and I've changed my life and I've done this and done this. And the judge goes, wait a minute, hold up. He stops court. He walks out. He comes back in. He says, I rethought what you said about that worldly sorrow and godly sorrow and repentance. And so I'm not going to give you 25 years. I'm going to give you one year in prison. And he goes to prison. He comes out. And uh, he volunteers with the organization. I was a volunteer for 30 years at this organization before I worked with him. So he was doing it with me. He sat down one day as a friend. And he goes, I want to talk to you about something important, Ben. And we sit down in a coffee shop. He says, Ben, let me ask you a question. Do you think you're Jesus? And I, you know, I was just didn't know how to take that. You know? And so I go, no, I don't, I don't think I'm Jesus. He says, Ben, you're a great preacher. The church loves you. They followed you. It's been 20-some years. And this, he goes, everything. He goes, my thing is, he goes, do me a favor. Go back and reread the Gospels and, and, and read it from the perspective of watching people follow you. And he goes, and just see if you're doing what Jesus did. And are you and look at who he did it with. And so I did. That was almost like another calling for me. Then I went back and I started reading the Gospels in Matthew 25. I got stuck. And I go, I'm not doing none of these. So I went and uh, I volunteered with a place called Focus Community Strategies, Urban Ministry. Maybe you've heard of Dr. Lupton in Atlanta, Georgia. I volunteered to be a community advocate. We sat down in the community groups of some of the poorest neighborhoods in Atlanta for conversation. Uh, I volunteered with uh, the Atlanta Food Bank, Habitat for Humanity. They're all in Atlanta, the American Red Cross. Um, I did, did all of those. 
And, and God taught me something in the process of engaging with Matthew 25 demographics. And without the motive, with the motivation of love, not church growth. I hope you follow me. Then I went, I'm a veteran. I went to the VA Medical Center. I signed up for a thing called uh, uh, CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. You know that as well. Awesome. I was a chaplain uh, there. I worked with traumatic brain injury vet- vet- veterans, uh, those with suicidal ideation, uh, PTSD. I, ha- I was assigned the psychiatric intensive care unit. I would go to the emergency room and then I would see all the soldiers. I would walk into rooms and I would see veterans who had served the country struggling with PTSD. Some of them suicidal, jumping out of cars to kill themselves just so their insurance could take care of their wife and children. One of the first patients I saw had uh, a bunch of weapons in the trunk of his car. He's going to come to the VA and shoot people. Then he says, and starting with you, talking about me. And I started seeing people hurting. I would go in hospital rooms and I would see one patient with flowers and cards and I would see somebody else over here. There's nothing, but they've just been told that they got two weeks to live because they got stage four pancreatic cancer. And I'm ministering to this person knowing you ain't gonna, you're not going to come to my church. What about membership? What about growth? And, and all I'm saying is in the process of doing that, the ministry to the least of these, God started showing, exposing my motivation that it, a lot of it wasn't love. A lot of it was my ministry profession and a kind of Christian obligation of these are the things I'm supposed to do. But when you do these for the least of these, and so I did that, and then I joined Cairo's prison ministry, and I went through their training, and I started to go into prisons and sit down with people. Then I took my son and the middle schoolers in my church, took them to prison so they could go in and sit down and talk to people and find Jesus in those who are incarcerated, to find Jesus, those who are sick and hurting, to find Jesus in those laying on the streets. And so what started to happen in my church, people would start saying, hey, can I get an appointment or a meeting with the minister or the pastor? And I would say, sure. Uh, why don't you meet me at 10 o'clock at the VA Medical Center? And we can spend a lot of time together. And then some of you say, what are you doing this weekend? I'm glad you asked. I'm going into the prison on Saturday. Want to come with me? And so it changed even the people around me because I started saying, come follow. And my friend Gary, what he was telling me was, Jesus says, follow me, imitate me, First Corinthians. As I do what? Imitate Christ and follow Christ. His question was, do you think you're Jesus? It's like, no, I don't think I'm Jesus. He goes, well, you need to disciple like him. Changed my life. And it helped me to to see this trajectory here and what happens. So what happens with the greatest commandment to love God? And what what happens when we skip that? And go straight to the Great Commission. You know, discipleship matures and grows in us as we go out and and really, like, ultimately just try to look. The motivation is loving. I'm just going to love. That agape love. Um, 
It's and it's the love. Like I go back real quick to the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, eternal life. He had the right answer, right? Jesus, you, you've answered correctly. Now go and do it. He tried to justify himself. He asked, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan because the guy tried to. Ju- That's why we had that story in there. And in that story, the Levite and the priest, what do they do? They pass on by. Who's the hero in the story? The half-breed. He's the hero. And, and I always tell people, like, we call it, I try not to say the parable of the Good Samaritan because the good, you know, the, that adjective good, I think has messed us up because Jesus says nobody's good. And I think we read that thinking about, I'm going to go be a good, I'm, I get eternal life by being a good person. You know, nowhere are we called to be good. Our acts aren't good. We just, we're not. It could be the compassionate Samaritan, the courageous Samaritan. But the problem is the Levite and the priest in that story, I guarantee you, were good men. And, and good people walk by. If, if, our, if our standard is goodness, good people cross on the other side. I know a lot of good people that don't do, don't do. So he's doing good. The Samaritan is doing love. That's what love looks like. Love is, I'm going to stop, going to come to you. And I guarantee that Samaritan's probably, I'm going to help somebody. He probably don't want me to touch him. But apparently I'm the only one that's stopping. So he stopped, took care of his wounds, put him in a hotel, Paid for it, left, left more money, followed up. That's what love looks like. Love is that. And so I'm I'm trying to simplify all the laws that are out there, but I certainly don't want to, to weaken the theology of what love actually looks like. And when the parent when the teacher of the law asked Jesus, what must I do to get eternal life? And then he responded with the Shema, love God. I think he thought, I got that love God. I checked that, but I don't, I, I don't think I got the neighbor part. So I'm going to ask about that and how he connects with other people. And that whole parable, like who could be the most loving person? So this right here, we, we tend sometimes just to total, totally miss it. And if we do, it becomes a church activity. It becomes a religious you know, obligation you know, kind of thing. What if we skip that and go straight to the Great Commission? And I know that I myself have skipped a lot of this in the process and gone straight to the Great Commission, and it has worked for a little while. I try to talk about love more in a biblical, biblical, theological point of view, because for us, like I can go, I love my wife, and then I might go, I love the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're not the same. You see what I'm saying? I love apple pie, a lot of desserts, you know, uh, and I love my children. They're not the same. They're not the same love. You see, but we use love so much that we have weakened it. And so I try to restore. And that's why I look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you want to see what love looks like, it looks like you helping someone that don't think like you think. Don't believe what you believe. Don't act how you would act. Don't live where you would live. You know what I'm saying? Don't belong to you. Won't repay you. And don't want you to touch him. I guarantee you, he probably was beating up on the side of the road. Anybody but you. 
Do not, you're a Samaritan. You dirty. Don't touch me. You'll make me unclean. And, and love goes, shut up. And then, you know, reaches down and picks you up and takes care. That's, that's love. That's where we got to get to. And if you un- understand this, it simplifies discipleship really, really easy. You love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We can spend our whole life figuring out what that actually really means. And you love your neighbor as yourself. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, at the very end, Jesus says, basically, who was the hero? But he says, who was the one who was the neighbor to the man? And the dude still didn't get it because he goes, the one. He didn't say the Samaritan. uh, Well, I guess the one who had mercy. And then Jesus, all right, I'm uh, going to do likewise. It was still go and do. But he couldn't bring himself to, to say that other person is, you know, that's the other Someone's different from me. Yeah, he was a Samaritan. I, I know you're telling the story, but in my heart, I don't want him to be the hero. So he's the, the one. And so this is, this is a, uh, the trajectory that I see in the gospel of Matthew that I've been trying to live into and lean into for like the last you know, 15 years. And as I said, you could really lean into all of these as di- different messages, different teachings that is very deep. I'm just going through it, but you see this trajectory of Jesus. So my biggest thing for us is that sometimes the great compassion can be the great omission as we go to the great commission. Sometimes we omit it in our churches and in our lives. You know, one uh, good you know action step or takeaway is, uh, and I've shared this with you know other groups before, is to on a piece of paper write down who is my neighbor. Right. Just take a piece of it. Who is my neighbor? And then start writing down who is you. And, and so some, and I, it could be, well, he's, he has the address next door to me. Well, that is a neighbor. Uh, my church members of my local church. Well, that, that's your, that neighbor too. But then when you, the, the, the engagement of writing down, you could actually, you know, Go, how do I decide who is my neighbor? Let me start off with who I don't like. Who who don't like me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you can make a list, and, it, and I've done this, it's very hard, and then go and pray, God, let, let me go love them. Let me let me go, let me go love them. Because we're supposed to love God. And love neighbor, as you pointed out, love neighbor as we love ourselves. It's a hard thing to do, but it was the answer to the eternal life question. You know, that, that's, that challenges me. And so I have pretty much convinced myself, I've, sent, I've been in so much school for years, to come back and learn two things. <laughs> two things. All that tuition for two things, it's all boiled down to, you know, loving God and loving neighbor itself. And that changes everything. And think about the order in which Jesus does this. And, you know, it's not in the Gospel of Matthew, but I think it's in the Gospel of, maybe it's Luke, where he sends out the 72. And he sends the 72 out two by two. He sends them out before 
the Great Commission. And when he goes out, look at what he tells them to do. Don't take no luggage. Don't take no money. Because don't take, yeah, don't take an extra coat. Because you're going to depend on the people you're reaching out to. And you're going to learn what that feels like and what it means, you know, uh, to reach out to somebody that you depend on. And then once you do that, then I'll send you out to the Great Commission later on. Thanks again for joining our podcast again today. Really grateful for Ben Barnett for providing this awesome content for us from our gathering this last year. If you like what he had to say, we just invite you to subscribe to our podcast. Make sure you get the weekly notifications. It pops up on your phone so you can listen in and get a lot more great content each week. We hope this message inspired and helped you in your ministry and you have a great week ahead of you. Hello, listener. Thank you for tuning into a Renew.org podcast. We want to invite you to join us this April in Indianapolis for our 2024 gathering, Courageous Renewal. We will feature speakers such as Anthony Walker, Tina Wilson, Bobby Harrington, Jonathan Storman, and so much more. Secure your spot now at Renew.org slash events. That is Renew.org slash events. Hope to see you there.